Take your Bible and turn to 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 17 through 22. And today I want to talk to you about the impact that false teachers can have on your life. In 2 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 17 through the end of the chapter. Scripture says, These are springs without water, and mist driven by a storm, for whom the black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom, while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb. A dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow, after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. False teachers are described here in this passage as those that will leave you parched. In verse 17, they are called springs without water and mists driven by a storm. I want you to consider, if you were, if you would, back in ancient days, if you lived in the Middle East in that dry and arid land and you were traveling from one place to another, the most valuable commodity that you could have would be water. And unless you were new to an area, you would know where the springs of water were. You'd know what path to take and how long you'd have to walk or ride your horse or your camel or whatever you had with you before you finally came to a spring of water. You knew where the wells were located and which wells might have a tendency to be filled and others might be dry. A spring of flowing water would be a haven for a thirsty traveler. But if you came upon where there should have been water, where there used to be water, there used to be a spring there, but now it's completely dried up. How would that make you feel? I mean, you'd be incredibly frustrated. You'd be very disappointed. And you may even find that your own life is in danger. Why? Because the relief that was promised to you based on your experience has now left you empty. And you don't have what you should have had when you encountered that spring. Well, false teachers are like that. False teachers promise satisfaction for thirsty souls. But in the end, they leave you parched and in need. Sometimes, uh, even out here in West Texas, we have a, a need for rain. And there's probably nothing more frustrating to a farmer than uh, to see those promised rain clouds form in the sky. And all you get is to look at them. The rain passes by, and the rain falls somewhere else. False teachers are like that. There's the promise of refreshment. 
the promise of nourishment, but in the end, they leave you empty. For example, let's take a look at Mormonism. When two Mormon missionaries riding bicycles dressed in white shirts and black ties and slacks, they come and they visit your home, uh, they'll gladly give you a copy of the Book of Mormon. But they won't give you a copy of their other so-called authoritative books, such as, uh, especially one called the Doctrine and Covenants. The Book of Mormon, the one that they'll give you, is simply designed to make you thirsty for more. Mormon theologians themselves have called the Book of Mormon theologically irrelevant. There's not much to it. It simply makes you thirsty for more. It's only designed to hook you into their system. And once you're hooked, that's when, at some point, they will give you a copy of the more theologically relevant doctrine, which is called Doctrine and Covenants. In Doctrine and Covenants, again, the, the book that they won't give you, here are some of the doctrines that are taught. Number one, polytheism, the idea of many gods. In fact, Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormon Church, once wrote, In the beginning, the head of the gods called a council of the gods, and they came together and concocted a plan to create the world and the people in it. And so Mormonism teaches polytheism. It, it, teaches, it teaches eternal marriage that you're going to be married beyond this life, although Jesus himself very clearly taught that there is no marriage beyond this life. Marriage is for this life. Mormonism and the Doctrine and Covenants teaches polygamy, having multiple wives. Of course, the Mormon church doesn't practice that today. Doctrine and Covenants in the Mormon church teaches human deification, that you can become a god. It teaches universalism, that everyone will be saved to one degree or another. It teaches that God once had a physical body and was a man. It teaches the idea of mother gods, sometimes called heavenly mothers that exist. It teaches that marriage in the Mormon temple is a requirement if you want to be exalted at the end times. And most damning, it teaches salvation by works. For example, Brigham Young stated that if a person wanted to obtain what they call the celestial kingdom, the highest level of heaven, he said, quote, it requires a strict obedience to every point of law and doctrine and to every ordinance which the Lord reveals. In other words, if you want to be saved, according to Mormons, not only uh, do you have to be a part of their system, but you also have to obey every single detail. It's a far cry from what Scripture teaches, that there's grace for when we fail. And so according to the Mormon salvation plan, part of uh, what is required for you to be saved and to get to the uh, celestial heaven, it includes tithing, to, of course only to the Mormon church. It includes not drinking caffeine. If you drink caffeine, you're not going to make it. Scripture, though, teaches grace. When you have teachings like this that lead step by step away from what Scripture teaches, they become a dried up well, a cloud that offers no water. Mormonism reminds me of Jeremiah 2.13 where the Lord said, They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. 
Peter calls them mists driven by a storm, a cloud that offers refreshment but simply leaves the land parched. Jesus, however, is the living water that will never leave you thirsty. In fact, in John chapter 4, verse 14, Jesus said, Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You know, it's very important to put God's Word in your heart. Place what God has said, not only in your mind but in your heart, to capture it so that you will have it when those hard times come. If you're not reading God's Word and, and putting your mind and your heart into consuming it, uh, then you will not be able to experience the living water that Jesus promised us as well. Not only will false teachers leave you parts, but they'll lead you into judgment. Verse 17 says that. It says again in verse 17, these are springs. These false teachers are springs without water. They're mist driven by a storm. And then it says, for whom the black darkness has been revealed. Or has been reserved, I should say. The black darkness has been reserved. That's where false teachers are headed. Ultimately, they're going to what Peter says is the black darkness. Why would you ever want to follow someone into the black darkness? I don't know exactly what hell is like. Scripture has a lot of different designations and descriptions for what hell is like. A lot of times we think of it as a fiery place. The lake of fire is described in Revelation, and it's certainly that. It seems to be described elsewhere as a place of void, a place of nothingness. Here it's described as not just blackness, not just darkness, but black darkness. I don't know if Peter knew exactly how to describe what hell was like either. But he described it as utter blackness, complete darkness. The blackness of the blackest darkness with no light whatsoever. Why would you want to follow someone into that? Be careful who you listen to when it comes to teaching God's Word. Be careful whom you follow. They, might, they may not know where they're going. But Scripture does. Scripture tells us where they're going. And worse yet, you may not know where you're going if you listen to them. The Scripture is clear. False teachers will leave you parched. They'll lead you to hell. They'll also entice you to sin. Verse 18. It says, For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. False teachers always try to attempt to, they attempt to seduce um, seekers. They attempt to seduce those that are new believers, people that are not well-versed in God's Word. The same word, entice, that's used here, is used elsewhere in ancient times for fishing. It's the hook. They try to hook you. 
False teachers use all kinds of bait to hook young believers. Sometimes they'll find someone who's been hurt, hurt by a family member, somehow engaged in some type of uh, physical or emotional pain, and that'll be the hook. Sometimes it'll be someone who's been hurt by a church member, hurt by the difficulties of life, even hurt by his own decisions or her own decisions. And a false teacher will come in and swoop in and show that he cares and lure the young believer or seeker astray. Isn't that enough, though, just to show that you care? I mean, does it really matter what anyone really believes just as long as they're concerned and they care about you? I want you to think about that because we live in a day that, uh, where Christians are accused of not caring. Christians are accused of not being kind, not being tenderhearted, not being compassionate. And the people in society today that are uh, said to be kind and compassionate are those that are, are everything but Christian. Even false teachers who fly in under the cape of Christianity seem to be very kind and caring and concerned. But I want you to think about if someone is teaching false doctrine, if someone is teaching the idea that Jesus is not the only way to heaven, if they're teaching that there's many ways to heaven, if they're teaching that Jesus is specifically not the way to heaven, that there's some other way to heaven than Jesus, is that really in the end being kind to the person? He might be hurting to entice them to believe something that ultimately will send them to hell. Christians are indeed called to be compassionate and kind and tender-hearted, but we have to do it within a framework of being true to what God's Word says. Scripture is clear about the doctrines that lead to life and the doctrines that lead to death and damnation and hell. And if someone is on their way to hell, it is not an ultimate comfort for them to bring other people along with them to that same destination. That's not comforting. That's not kind. It's misled at the very best. And at the worst, it's intentional. False teachers seek to entice people that have been hurt and so I want you to think about this. You know, when, when you, if you've done like me, and you study uh, different cults and different uh, false beliefs, such as Mormonism, and, and you see some of the historical inaccuracies and internal inconsistencies of groups like the Mormons or groups like the Jehovah's Witnesses, you realize that an informed person and a logical person would never choose to become either one of those. Someone who studies those doctrines with, with, uh, with an eye toward the truth would never knowingly become a, a Mormon. There's too many internal inconsistencies. There's too many historical inaccuracies, blatant historical inaccuracies. Same thing with the uh, book, or same thing with Jehovah's Witnesses. No one would ever become a Jehovah's Witness if they looked at the actual evidence, historically and otherwise, and internal evidence of either one of those so-called faiths. So why are both of those groups growing? Why does the Mormon church continue to grow? In the face of historical inaccuracies, in the face of 
complete internal inconsistencies. Why does the uh, Church of Mormon, the Latter-day Saint Church, grow? Why do Jehovah's Witnesses grow? Well, a couple of reasons. Number one, what I've touched on already, they, they try to connect on an emotional level with someone that's hurting. And that's a great tie. That's a great building block for their false faiths. But also, I think they're growing because they're probably more committed to exposing people to their false te- teaching than we are exposing people to the God's Word. They try harder. Dedicated Mormons spend two years as missionaries spreading out a false gospel. Dedicated Jehovah's Witnesses are expected to give 60 to 100 hours a month propagating their false gospel. What would you do if I asked you to spend 60 to 100 100 hours a month sharing the gospel door to door? If that was a requirement to be a member of our church. 60 to 100 hours a month. I wonder how many Baptists would take up that offer. They grow because they're trying harder than we do. Somehow, you know, I think uh, we, we've gotten off track. We think that, uh, that church is really about coming together as, with a group of friends to study the Bible, and that's about it. But way back, way back when, uh, there's a guy named Arthur Flake. And he was the guru of Sunday school. He came up with a thing, a few of you may remember, called Flake's Formula. Flake's Formula had a list of uh, uh, just a few, about five different things that were the tasks of the Sunday school. And he explained exactly how to engage in growth in Sunday school. And the tasks of the Sunday school always began with this task, number one task of Sunday school. What do you think the number one task of Sunday school is? It's not to teach the Bible. That's number two. Number one, reach people for Bible study. Reach people. The Sunday school, and by extension, the church should always be reaching out to new people to grow that Sunday school, to grow the church. The reason Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses are growing is because they're trying. False teachers, though, they'll entice you by their smooth words, their words of comfort when you're hurting. They'll entice you ultimately to sin. They'll also show how committed they are to their false doctrines. Verse 19 says that they promise them freedom. False teachers promise their followers freedom, while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. They are very committed to their false doctrine. False teachers place rule after rule upon their adherents. And yet they themselves can't live up to their own rules. But nevertheless, they make sure that they, they put a burden upon burden upon burden. It's never enough. It's never enough. You always have to strive. You always have to work. You always have to uh, do more if you're ever going to be according to Jehovah's Witnesses, one of the 144,000. Or if, according to the Mormon faith, you're ever going to reach that celestial heaven. It's never enough. Whatever you do, you're always, you always fall short. Ultimately, no room for grace. See, freedom does not come by living 
by a strict list of do's and don'ts. Freedom does not come through intimidation, that if you fail in one particular point of the law, you're going to be rejected. Freedom comes through God's grace, knowing that He loves you and He forgives you even if you fail. False teachers will get you ultimately to reject your faith. Verses 20 through 22, very interesting verses. It says, For if after they have, been, after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It has happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. What I believe that Peter's talking about here is the scenario of false teachers who have given every indication of becoming followers of Jesus Christ. Every indication on the outside, it looks like They've become followers of Jesus Christ. It looks like they want others to become followers of Jesus Christ. Because these false teachers have heard the gospel, they understand the gospel, and they seemingly have received the gospel. And so when you turn on the TV and you see a false teacher like Benny Hinn, and he talks about receiving Jesus into your heart, boy, that sure sounds good. It sure sounds like what my Baptist preacher said on Sunday. It sure sounds right. And it seems like, well, this guy, he must be someone who's a true follower of Jesus. Because by everything we can tell, these people are real Christians. By everything we can tell. But only God knows the heart. And here's the scenario. The reality is that they have heard the gospel, they understand the gospel, they seem to have received the gospel, and then they use their knowledge of the gospel not only to secretly reject it, but to make money off of it, to lure people. through the use of greed to lure people through the use of lust to lure people away from true doctrine that's why Peter says it would have been better for them had they never have tasted of the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ it would have been better for them had they just simply from the very outset heard the gospel and understood it and said no. It would have been better for them to have said no than to pretend to say yes and then thereafter mislead many others down the same path. It would have been better for them. Hebrews chapter 6 verses 4 through 8 describes this in in different terms the same type of idea listen to these words for in the case of those 
who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. For the ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those who... For, for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. It is better for someone to outright reject the Lord Jesus Christ than to pretend to receive him and then turn around and try to make a buck off of it. Things won't go well for that person at the final judgment. And things won't go well for those that follow that person at the final judgment. What Peter is calling us to is perseverance. That if you say that you've received Jesus Christ, because the reality is, I can't honestly tell. No one else can honestly tell what has truly gone on in your heart. If a false teacher can fool us all, then any one of us can be fooled by anyone else. But if you say that you're a Christian, if you say that you've received the Lord Jesus Christ, you better persevere to the end. You need to make sure that your faith comes to full fruition. And part of that fruition means that you grow deeper in your understanding and knowledge of who Jesus is. We need to be warned against following those that preach a false gospel, a gospel of money, a gospel of greed, a gospel of lust, couched in the same terms as the gospel of Jesus Christ. Peter says of those people in verse 22 that a dog returns to its own vomit and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. Why would a dog that's sick and throw up, why would it return to that? Because that's the nature of dogs. It's what they do. Why would a nice, beautiful pig that you clean up get it to smell all good turn right around and go back and spin around and slosh around in the mud and the muck and the filth why would it do that because that's what pigs do why do false teachers lead people into greed lead people into sexual immorality lead people to hell because that's what false teachers do. It's their nature. Don't follow them. Unfortunately, today, we have incredible access to any kind of teaching. I say unfortunately because it doesn't have to be unfortunate. We've got access to all types of good teaching. But we have to be people of discernment. 
We have to listen. We have to dig. We have to study. We have to understand. And the best thing you can do is not to try to understand every single false teacher that's out there, but it's to understand this book. You understand Scripture, and you will not be led astray. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, verses 43 through 45, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest, but it finds none. Then it says, I will return to, the ho- to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty and swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. Listener, there are influencers in your life that leave you parched, that will lead you into judgment, that entice you to sin, that enslave you, that cause you to reject or want to reject your faith. You better stay away from them. You better unfriend them. You better move away from them. If there's somebody, anybody, that's trying to get you to move away from the Lord Jesus Christ and from the doctrines of God's Word, you need to get away from that because it's very, very dangerous.